Hello, Stitchers. Welcome to Stitch Please, the official podcast of Black Women Stitch, the sewing group where Black Lives Matter. I'm your host, Lisa Woolfork. I'm a fourth-generation sewing enthusiast with more than 20 years of sewing experience. I am looking forward to today's conversation, so sit back, relax, and get ready to get your stitch together. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Stitch Please podcast. This is the official podcast of Black Women Stitch, and I'm your host, Lisa Woolford. Very happy, thrilled, and delighted to be talking today with Carol Lyles Shaw. Carol is a amazing quilter whose focus is in the modern quilt tradition. And so I'm very happy to have her here. I also have to say that I met Carol a few years ago at the 5440 retreat. An African-American quilt guild was celebrating their 25th anniversary. They had a retreat and I met Carol there and it was such a blessing to meet her. I was coming from a place where I knew, of course, about the robust African-American quilting tradition, but I didn't know very many other African-American quilters in my own community. And so to go to this retreat and see this, uh, this staggering work by a variety of different aesthetic traditions from Black women, and Carol was there teaching a class in, it might have been Curves, Parisian Curves. Am I missing that title up? But she was teaching something and then we went to dinner and it was just, it was just a really wonderful time to see so many black women in positions of creativity, but also in creative leadership. And Carol was one of those people. And so this was long before uh, black women's stitch was was what it is now. It was still very much a strong idea and I was still wanting to have a retreat and I was still, and Carol was so patient with every question I had with how do I do this or what do you think about that? She was just amazing. And so I'm really glad to be here and talking with her. Carol, welcome and thank you for all that you do. Thank you so much, Lisa. I love that introduction. (laughs) Well, you are absolutely fantastic. You really are. So I'm so glad to be able to have this conversation with you, especially about um, your sewing story. And so can, can you tell us a bit about your sewing story? How did you get started? How did you get started down the path of quilting? Love to share it. And first of all, I am honored to be here. I I do remember our meeting and how we just clicked and and talked about so many things. And I was in awe of your sewing skills, that those garments you were making, it seemed like magic. (laughs) Suddenly they were there. (laughs) But uh, my sewing story begins many years ago when I lived in Baltimore, which is home. Shout out to Baltimore. And I... One day, woke up, and I was 40, probably, I'm sure, in years and age, 40 years in age. And I woke up one day and decided that I was going to make quilts for my nieces and nephews. I did not sew. I did not own a sewing machine. My goodness. You just, so you just had, you know what I like to do? My nieces and nephews need quilts in their lives, and they need me to be the one to make them. Okay, so you started with this idea. That's right. I describe it as an angel just sitting on my shoulder, whispering in my ear. That's the only way I can explain it. 
Excellent. But, so from there, I went to the library. I got some books. I went to Joanne Fabrics and bought some fabrics based on what those books said I should buy. And I started making pretty traditional quilts, nine patch and log cabin and those kinds of basic patterns. I also looked at magazines and so forth. But then I stumbled across the art quilting world. And that was great for me because even as I was making the quilts for my nieces and nephews, I was changing up the patterns because I just didn't want to make 7,500 half square triangles over and over. That was just too boring. But anyway, I was self-taught. I watched, you know, the TV shows that were on at the time on the public broadcasting stations. Yes. There was a lot of good quilt. There's a lot of good quilting TV. Absolutely. I remember that. And and then it was just a couple of people who were making uh, those videos, a couple of women, and I just admired what they were doing and just, it was just a wonderful world, but there weren't a lot of resources then. Like now, it's a thousandfold bigger in terms of resources for self-taught quilters. But one day I went to an art quilt exhibit at a local community college near my house, and I looked across the room and I saw another African-American woman there. And then I realized that she and I were the only ones in the room in this gallery who were African-American. She came immediately over to me. And as I describe it, she just scooped me up in her arms and uh, she introduced herself. Her name uh, is Barbara Piatilla. And she mentioned that she had quilts in the exhibit. And I had been admiring her quilts, and I told her who I was and that I was a budding quilter just getting started. And she said, come with me. you got to join our group. i got some people you need to meet. She had started the African-American Quilters of Baltimore. And that guild had been going for a while. So I went to the first meeting met a whole bunch of quilters, and I brought some of the quilts that I had been playing around with. And those women were so generous and excited. Now, at the time, Barbara was the only art quilter in that group. The rest of the members were basically making traditional quilts, Mm -hmm. And they were using heirloom sewing skills, which I'm sure you can appreciate, Lisa. Oh, my goodness. Seriously. They were hand quilting 12 stitches or less to an inch. Oh, my gosh. They were doing needle turn applique to make Baltimore album quilts. I mean, their skills. Uh, They looked at what I was doing and how I was uh, starting to move into art quilting. And they and I brought up, I think, a couple of my traditional quilts, too. And they said, Carol, you're doing interesting things, but I think you need to learn how to sew <laughs> because you really don't want those quilts to fall apart the first time they get washed. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> no, I don't. Teach me. So they did. Uh, the, the generosity of spirit is uh, just 
it still warms my heart to this day. I always give them uh, credit for helping me really launch my career because I had ideas, but I didn't really have the tools to execute them. So they gave me some really good fundamentals. And to this day, I can do needle turn applique. I don't. <laughs> but, like, but you can. But that I is can. the point. But you there's precision piecing if I really want to. But it's all thanks to them. They taught me that. And they taught me a lot of other things. They taught me about color and design and fabric and uh, just all the things we need to know uh, as people who love textiles. Uh, at the I, same time, I was really uh, also in lots and lots of art museums and galleries looking at modern art, because that's where my design aesthetic really comes from. So that's how I got started. <laughs> there is so much about this story that I absolutely love. I think the thing, the first, one of the first things that stands out to me is I have, of course, been in this position of being like the lonely only, the lonely only black person in the place or the way that we can find each other. Like we go to the sewing expo and there's thousands of people there and a handful of black women. And for the most part, when we see each other, we stop and speak. That's a basic courtesy but (laughs) but then we could have a conversation where are you from what do you do really I have gained so much from just these random chance encounters I remember once we went to the Biltmore which is this um, fancy house in Asheville North Carolina and I mentioned it because we did this for vacation last a couple yeah two years ago and I'm telling you Carol I, I was playing my favorite game which is I'll give the kids a dollar for every black person I happen to see in this place I'm like we're not gonna see any black people here today and for everyone I see I'll give y'all a dollar and I will keep all of my money because the only black people we're going to see are the ones in this car. But <laughs> we met this black lady and she was like the one of the, it was, it was me and my kids and her. And she turned out to be a photographer and we had this great conversation. She was in the AFL-CIO leadership. And at the end of the day, it turned out she was a photographer. My son, who was like maybe what, 12 at the time, was getting into photography. She sends him an actual camera in the mail. <gasps> She sent him a Nikon camera. She was like, I have this extra camera. I would love to give it to a new photographer. And she did. She said, girl, I'm just saying, I love black women because we know how to take care of each other. And that is um, at the the best of times, this is what we do for each other. And so the idea that you were at this, that you were at this art quilt exhibit and there's another black woman there whose work you just happen to be admiring. And instead of just her just receiving the praise, she wants to connect with you. And another thing about that story is that you took your quilts, you are very new at this, and you go to this collection of women who are extraordinarily skilled at sewing and extraordinarily skilled at quilting and with the heirloom techniques, like you said, the needle turn applique, hem stitch, 12 stitches to the doggone itch by hand. What? I mean, just incredible. And instead of saying, oh, girl, what on earth do you think you are doing? Why are you bringing that stuff in here? That's weak sauce. (laughs) Say, this is what you're doing. You've got good instincts. Let us get your skills up. We're going to help you level up. And they did that without shaming you, without making you feel like you were not capable. And that's something that I just really love. And I do remember 
going to the library to get quilt books. I remember actually putting in order request for our library to buy certain quilt books because the internet just wasn't as popping as it is right now. And you couldn't just find everything that you needed with the click of a few buttons. You had to get a catalog and the catalog had the book in it. And, and so I told him, we actually got a lot of good recipes that way too, actually. Um, (laughs) so I love this. So as a self-taught quilter, how did you, how do you, what do you imagine um, are the steps that you, I don't know, it just feels amazing to me that you started in this position of just saying, my nieces, my niece and nephew need some quilts and I want to be the one to make them to someone who is writing books and co-founding a quilt, a modern quilt guild of their own and now teaching classes all over and exhibiting work all over. How do you, when you look back at this part of your journey, like, how do you imagine that you, what steps did you take to get there? Because it's so impressive. It's so funny when I try to think back to the very first quilts that I was making after buying a sewing machine at uh, Sears. <laughs> oh my uh, word. I, I, those, those Kenmore I machines were good machines. Yeah, those it, Kenmore machines were good machines. Yep, they were. It was solid, came in a nice wooden cabinet and everything. I don't know. I do know. Let me not be overly (laughs) self-deprecating here. I've always been, first of all, interested in anything that had to do with art and color. So this textile uh, world really felt like an extension of my, you know, lifelong interest in that sense. And I just figured I can learn to do anything. As my aunt, one of my aunts used to say, if you can read and remember, you can learn to do almost anything. And that stuck with me. And I've taught myself a lot of things. Speaking of photography, I taught myself photography way back in the day. I took a few classes in painting when I thought maybe I want to paint and explored that. But I've always figured I can learn to do this. Sometimes a great thing. that when I'm teaching, I use that really as my learning framework. This is just fabric. It's a sewing machine. We're not landing a 757 here. (laughs) (laughs) You can learn to do anything here. It may take you a little while to get that level of skill to master it. But the fundamentals, anybody can learn this. If a five-year-old can sit in front of a sewing machine and sew a seam, what's so hard? (laughs) We, as adults, we are bombarded with messages about perfectionism and uh, mastery. And we forget that if we use our curious openness, our childlike mind, the world is available to us. We need to encourage new quilters of any age and type or someone new to a type of quilting. My classes are very much grounded in, of course, modern quilting and improvisation. And I get lots and lots of students who are new to one or both of those styles of creating a quilt. And 
I just tell them, forget some of what you already know about quilting and come to this with an open mind because you're going to learn a new set of tools. And that's all it is. It's a new set of tools or a different set of tools. But come open, come ready, come be ready to have, come ready to have some fun. And please come ready to make some mistakes. Because in improvisation, especially, I'm always saying we have intention. There are techniques, there are steps, there's, there are processes that I teach in my classes. I said, however, at some point in implementing that technique, there will be an unexpected result, hmm. an unexpected outcome. That's part of improvisation. It's the discovery. Not really know. And my students will say this. Okay, Carol. So you always say, start with an intention, but don't worry about the end result. The end will emerge. So we don't have to know what the end result will be. I said, exactly. And it is 180 degrees different from most either very pattern-based approaches or traditional quilts, precision piecing. You do know the end result, and you know what it's supposed to look like, what it has to look like. Not so with improvisation, because you can always do something different. <laughs> Whatever comes out, if you love it, you leave it. If you don't love it, you change it. I love that. Oh my gosh. Okay. So I wanted to follow up with a couple of questions. First, I think I'm going to need some definitions because I'd love some, what to hear your perspective on how you define the genres of these quilts. I think that I'm doing, I think that I'm melding in my mind three different things. So could you, so I guess I'm going to ask you to define according to your own um, perspective, what is an art quilt? What is a modern quilt? Um, and would you imagine improvisation going under modern quilt, like a subset, or would that be a totally separate style of quilting as well? So maybe tell folks, what is an art quilt? Okay. Um, and this is always a challenging uh, question. There's um, no wrong answer. <laughs> I know, <laughs> but I'm trying to give a coherent answer. <laughs> okay. An art quilt. For me, art quilting is a style of textile work where the maker wants to achieve a new and unique outcome, not a pattern, not following a style or even a, a technique or a a format uh, that other people have done. In other words, the art quilter is always striving for a unique result. Now, art quilting also usually involves surface design, that is, doing something to the fabric itself. It could be printing on it. It could be painting on it. It could be burning it or rusting it, that is using something rusty and wrapping the fabric around it, sprinkling it with water and letting the rust put a, an imprint on the fabric. There are all wow. kinds of surface design tools and techniques. An art quilt is, in terms of its purpose, its 
fundamental purpose is to also adorn some area of the home. Just like we hang paintings or put a sculpture in our rooms, in our living room, bedroom, wherever. Mm -hmm. An art quilt is made to be hung, frankly. Okay. Okay. And typically not washable. It's usually not for the bed. Now that said... (laughs) There so it's primarily, ones. would you say it's primarily an aesthetic object? And by aesthetic object, I'm saying that it's like, it's untouchable. It's that the value of it is what happens when someone looks at it. Like when you go to a gallery or you have it in your home, it's about the, the, it's about the sensations or the thoughts that art piece prompts in the viewer. That's how you engage an art quilt through looking at it through, as opposed to holding it or sleeping under it or something like that. Does that sound? That's perfect. Now that said, there are art quilters who make their quilt and who sleep under it for a night or two or three before it's given to whoever, you know, might purchase it or be put on display somewhere. Why do you think people do that? That's interesting. I think it's, and and I have done it too with a few, with some of my larger art quilts. I think it's a last moment bonding with the piece itself, the Mm. quilt itself. And I think it also gives homage to the quilt, the traditional quilt origins of the art quilt. Art quilting is also grounded in traditional quilt making made for the bed to cover and comfort and keep Mm -hmm. people warm. Mm -hmm. And I think that's, at least that's my thinking about what prompts us to do it. Like we're huddling and cuddling and loving it before we send it out into the world. Oh, that's beautiful. Yeah. With textile, as in many of the, the plastic arts, I guess we call them, Mm-hmm. where you're manipulating with your hands. <laughs> Tech quilt making is very much a hands-on process. Yes. Um, <clears throat> even if you're printing photographs onto a piece of fabric to use in an art quilt, it's very physical art. And the hand on textile is, that goes back thousands of years. In human yes, so there's that's a so genetic- true memory there, I think. Yes, yes, yes. That's true. So that's, that's absolutely that's true. Art quilting. <laughs> okay. So how does the modern quilt then compare to the art quilt? I guess I'm trying to think about, do we see these as things that might be siblings, right? There's the art quilt and then the sibling would be the modern quilt. Or do we see this as a hierarchical relationship, the art quilt then births the, you know, begats the the modern quilt. I guess uh, if I were going to use a metaphor, maybe it's a solar system. Oh, it's I love that. Look at you. See, you're an artist. That's why you think like that. <laughs> and for me, the sun in a solar, our solar system, the sun would be traditional quilting. All those quilts made by hundreds, thousands, millions of women and men over the years who actually, maybe I want to change this metaphor a little bit, but anyway, <laughs> if we, we think of all textile making as the sun, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to broaden this. 
All I love it. Making is the sun. And then the first planet that I would go to in the solar system would be the planet of traditional quilt making. But there's another planet that's spun out of all the stuff that all the planets in our solar system were made from, another planet called art quilting. And then there's another planet called traditional quilting. And then there's another planet called modern quilting. And modern quilting comes from the same source, that sun, and it's very much related to traditional quilting because modern quilts start with the block, the traditional block, the yes. square, the half square triangle, it's the hexagon. Those are the basic building blocks of traditional quilting and modern quilting. However, when you get to the modern quilting planet, what happens to those blocks is very different. We have very new, fresh color schemes that are constantly actually being reinvented. When most modern quilters or quilters using a modern aesthetic, when they started making quilts, they wanted to use uh, new colors, more modern colors, late 20th century, mid to late 20th century colors. Mm -hmm. There wasn't a lot available in cotton fabric. If you wanted to find some colors that weren't muted blues and grays and muted yellows and Civil War colors and, mm -hmm. you know, homespun looking stuff. Yes. You had to maybe go over to the dressmaking department to find oh. linen or cottons with different colors. Now, of course, Moda and Kona and all of them have 175 different colors of solids alone. That's and every true. year there's another new color that comes out. It's amazing. But And if we wanted to find fabrics that weren't little tiny calico designs. Little teeny them, tiny flowers. Little, little flowers and little dots and all that stuff. <laughs> you had to go to the dress department. And that's where I bought a lot of my early, what am I trying to say? My early <laughs> fabrics for my early quilts. Cause I was starting to play with the idea of modern quilts before I knew what the modern aesthetic was. Interesting. You know, and, but I'm not alone. Many people were, I, I won't, <laughs> I'm not trying to say I'm the only one. But then some folks who were really thinking critically about where they were headed with their aesthetic mm -hmm. um, created the core elements or design principles of modern quilting. And we're still playing and reinventing even those design principles today. So modern quilting is still emerging but the fundamental design principles really come out of mid-20th century painting. Uh, minimalist huh. paintings influenced minimalist quilt making, meaning limited color palettes, limited lines in the design, in the blocks themselves. So minimalism. Pop art and mid-century modern art also influenced early and still can continue to influence us to this day in terms of design aesthetic. 
yeah, we're, it's all related. It's a continuum. These are not boxes with rigid sides. Oh, um, I love that metaphor. They're not boxes with rigid sides. Right. I keep changing my metaphors. <laughs> These are great. I love a metaphor. The more the merrier. Yeah. And the Modern Quilt Guild, which is an international organ- formal organization, even has a category at our quilt shows called Modern Traditional to honor the fact that it is a continuum. And in that modern traditional category, you have to clearly show what element of traditional quilt making you are interpreting and expanding, but not so far that we lose sight of where it began. Wow. That sounds like it'd be a very difficult category to judge. (laughs) Any of the categories and you say, okay, should it be over here in the negative use of negative space or should it be over here in whatever name the category? Um, And we have an emerging trend that I absolutely love. And I will say I'm one of the early proponents of this trend, not the only, but one of the early ones. Uh, And that's called maximalism. And those are what is that? quilts with a very a number of elements. But one of the elements could be very vibrant, intense color use and less use of negative space, perhaps no negative space as we traditionally define it. So it's a highly patterned, vibrant visually vibrant aesthetic. And in fact, a couple of years ago, one of the winning quilts at our annual conference con was a maximalist quilt, which was a surprise to many people because those of us who've been saying, Hey, there's a new trend, maximalism. We felt very vindicated (laughs) in our formal arena. But but there are hundreds of thousands of modern quilters, or I should say quilters making modern quilts, uh, because quilters also don't fall into any particular box. We can do whatever we want. That, that's right. I'm really loving this. And I, it really feels that the metaphor about the solar system seems like it really is a really good one to describe the aesthetic and the formal considerations of this, basically this universe of quilting. So that's a good one. Good job. I want to take a quick, I want to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to, we're going to talk more about, I'd love to talk more about the, the guild um, that you helped um, to found um, as well as um, to talk about QuiltCon because I've never been and um, some of the classes that you teach and your books. So we still have a lot to talk about everybody. So stay tuned. I will be back after this quick break. The Stitch Please podcast is really growing. Um, I want to thank you for listening to the podcast and ask a favor. If you are listening to this podcast on a medium that allows you to rate it or review it, for example, Apple Podcasts or iTunes, please do so. If you're enjoying the podcast, if you could drop me a five-star rating, if you um, have something to say about the podcast um, and you wanted to include that, a couple sentences in the review box of Apple makes 
a really big difference in how the podcast is evaluated by Apple, how it becomes more visible. It really is a way to lean into the algorithm that helps to rank podcasts. Um, So if you had time to do that, to drop a little line in the review feature of the podcast, that would be really appreciated and would help us to grow even further and faster. All right, everybody, welcome back. And I am speaking today with Carol Lyle Shaw about modern quilts and the whole universe of quilting. But Carol's interest has been in the modern quilt tradition. And th- this interest is so profound that she is a co-founder of the Sarasota Modern Quilt Guild in Sarasota, Florida. Can you tell us a bit about the organization and what prompted you to create it? Sure. My husband and I moved to Florida I guess it was 2012, I guess now. And I didn't have a quilt community down here. We just moved here because we liked the area. And so, because I like having community, and I miss the African-American quilters of Baltimore, my home guild there. So anyway, I had joined the Modern Quilt Guild as an individual member. And through that membership, they connected me up with another member uh, who lived in this area. And she and I talked by phone. Uh, We visited a couple of the guilds, modern guild chapters that were in our area. They were a little bit distant, but we went to their meeting. And uh, she and I kept talking, and we decided we would start a guild that was more central to Sarasota Mm -hmm. uh, that was served this region. And our thought was uh, that we would find five or 10 people and we'd be a little group and maybe we'd become a formal chapter. Maybe not. We had the first meeting, first couple meetings at my house and very quickly we had to go find space to meet in. So you got more than five to 10 people that first meeting? It grew from like the first time, I guess there were eight or nine of us. And then suddenly there were 15 people and then we were getting emails from people who were interested. Wow. So we said, okay, I guess we better uh, go find some space. So we found a free space at a, at a local library. Yay, libraries. And yes. Shout out to libraries. Uh, and we continue to meet there to this day. And my friend and I said, we want to make it an informal group, no drama, no competitiveness. Mm-hmm. We're not going to do shows. We're just going to get together and help each other learn about modern quilting. And that's what we decided to do. So we've kept that in our minds to this day. We do have a little more formal structure. Uh, we have 55 paid members. Hey. And then like, a wonderful thing happened. We All of a sudden, we realized we had this huge waiting list of people who wanted to join the guild. That's incredible. And we had to keep it small because of the size of the space we meet in. And we didn't want to have to move to a bigger space and become a big guild. We just didn't want to be a big group of people. We wanted to keep it small, intimate and friendly. And like I said, no drama and little stuff. Anyway, fortunately, 
a couple of people who had been visiting with us and one woman, in fact, who has a local quilt shop in the area and several other people, they decided, why don't we start another guild? <gasps> and and so through the grapevine, I heard they were going to do this and I called them up immediately and said, how can we help? Because <laughs> <laughs> we hate having this wait list. It makes us look like we're trying to be exclusive. That's not what it's about at all. We just don't want to pay for more space. <laughs> That's right. That's right. It's like we have so, uh, lovely free library space for yeah. the 55 of us and we can't fit a hundred in there. And so they said, oh, we're so glad that you're happy about this. I said, happy. We're ecstatic. We're over the moon. How can we help? What do you need from us? Let us know anything that we can do to help. So a lot of people from our wait list start, went to that startup guild. And I can't, I think there are over 60 or 70 members there. And we have only maybe, I don't know, a handful of members who belong to both guilds. So it's really two different groups. But we do yes. a joint show. We've been doing a joint uh, free, it's not even a show, it's an exhibit. We bring our quilts to a local park in February oh, that's and right. we hang them on clotheslines. It's a free event and any member can hang, no judging, no prizes, no nothing. Just come see wow. great modern quilts. I think I've seen some photos on your page from this event. Is it near the water? Am I thinking this wrong? Yeah, it like is. Like a lake or something? It's actually on the Gulf Coast. Okay. The Gulf Coast. So this particular park is on the Gulf and you can see the water from the space that we rent to to yes. do this this activity. We rent a pavilion there. So we do that and and we just exchange a lot of information and support each other in every way we can. We call ourselves sister guilds. Oh, that's so wonderful. That, that's, that's been a really lovely outcome of my friend and I saying, let's start a little group. <laughs> <laughs> And you were able to maintain that. You were able to keep that. You were able to say, okay, when we get to a point, we're going to just keep a waiting list and we're not trying to be snobby. It's not because we don't think that other people who are waiting are worthy. We're all worthy, but there's limitations that we have that have nothing to do with our desire to grow. Um, exactly. And that, and so when someone else pops up, you don't see them as competition. You see this as a form of cooperation. Like you are Absolutely. helping us. And I just, I really love that. I wanted to shift to, to talk some about the, the books that you've written. So I was thinking about the, the modern quilt one, of course, but you are, and also the patriotic ones. I'm not a big, like patriotic um, person, but looking at your work, what I was able to discern from the way that you talked about it was that you did, I thought a really great job of basically in some ways claiming some of the legacies of um, Americana for black folks. That was something that I think that I recognize that I appreciate about the work that you did in the patriotic uh, quilt book. Can you talk a bit more about that, about what made you to, what made you offer a contribution to what some might call Americana or what some might call, or as you call it yourself, the patriotic quilt book? Uh, you nailed it. <laughs> that book came out of uh... Actually, it, it actually came out of my art quilt work, which I still continue to make 
art quilts, but on a much more limited basis, occasional commissions and that sort of thing. But I had just, I had been making art quilts that were honoring the service of African-American men and women, particularly in the period of the World War II and Korea, because Mm -hmm. at that time when they served, and my father and uncles were part of that generation, when they served, they actually there were legal limits on their ability to participate in American life. The army was segregated, you know, voting rights were absolutely suppressed in brutal ways, particularly in the South of the U S segregation in the army, the Navy, et cetera. We all know that history. We know more about it now, but I had been, I had, I had discovered some memorabilia and, the house of one of my grandparents. And uh, anyway, long story short, I had been making those art quilts and had set that theme to the side. I wrote my first modern quilt book set of patterns and self-published. Another thing I taught myself (laughs) with help, but self-published. And then I I had been looking at my African-American military quilts and that sparked in me a drive to, first of all, moder- pa- modernize patriotic quilts, tie it to the theme, because there is one quilt in that book that is actually an art quilt that mm. has photos of my father and some of, and my uncle and some of his friends who served. But the, and then another thing that I don't know where that was coming up for me was the need to tie patriotic quilts to honoring our core liberties that are founded mm. in the Constitution. Mm. So in that book, I have excerpts from the Constitution which not enough people have read. And I include myself in that group because when I started this, I thought maybe I better read this constitution myself again. A lot of things came together to cause me to say, I'm going to publish this book. And unfortunately in the wider quilt world, patriotic quilts seem to be the province of white female quilters. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I wasn't trying to challenge that. I wanted to broaden that story. So I said, I'll just do a book. I'll do some patterns. I'll do this book. And then at the end, uh, before I closed that design, I said, I'm adding this particular art quilt. And it's a pattern of sorts, but I wanted to end with the project that really honored where this whole interest in patriotic quilts came from. Because my art quilts, in the art quilts that I made in that series, I used a lot of traditional patriotic fabrics, but I used them in a very art quilty slash modern way. Yes. It all came together in that book. And then after that, I said, I may not make another red, white, and blue quilt again. <laughs> Enough. I need to move back to my colorway. 
So that's where that book came from. And it still sells. It's not a huge seller, but, Mm -hmm. and every once in a while, a guild asks me to lecture about my journey around the patriotic uh, quilt, both art and modern quilt. So yes, I I can see that. Now the book that, and so would you say that your madly modern quilt book is that is a bit more popular? Do you think that, that there's, if you were to think about the two in terms of how you imagine the trajectory of your work, it seems that both of these fit so beautifully because it's so much, at least in my mind, about community and reclamation and who gets to do what and how, as well as empowering people with tools to to do these things and to claim these things in their own lives, which that's one of the things I really love about what you're doing. Tell us about the, the modern quilt book. Madly Modern is interesting to me when I look back now at those patterns. I think, boy, I I have personally come a long way as well. In particular, there are a couple of patterns in that book that I have turned into workshops And one of them may actually become a third on-demand class next year. Nice. But the techniques that I I talk about in that book, I've just pulled them forward and expanded what I do with the techniques. I'm not going to rewrite the book. Uh, the, the direction that she, I'm you heard it here, folks. First, you've no, heard it here no, first, folks. Um, she said she's not going to rewrite the book. So when we look up in I don't know six to eight months, and there's a new book, it's going to be a totally new one, <laughs> right? And then I'll say, "Oops." But what I have done is take two two of the patterns in particular. One of them is the Parisian curve, which is an improvisationally cut curve block, no templates, no pinning. And I have expanded that technique and actually I'm creating my second on-demand class uh, around that technique. It's anyway, (laughs) it's coming, it's coming along. I have started filming and I've got a couple of hours done and probably four more hours of filming to do. But but when I look at what I described in the book versus what I teach in the live workshops around that technique now, I really, I, I dive deep into what you can do with that, that process. My first on-demand class also came out of the improv curve. Oh. Uh, it's the, mat, uh, sorry, mid-century modern workshop. And that's a very popular on-demand class. And I occasionally teach an intro class, uh, but I'm probably going to retire the intro class this year and uh, really focus on the on-demand class. In my on-demand classes, although you study it on your own schedule, I also, every few weeks, I run a live Q&A where oh, that's students nice. can bring, you know, questions and talk about the fabric that they want to use, et cetera. Or I will dive into how to use fabric or some other aspect of the process. And then I now have started recording and doing some excerpting from that recording and posting that in our class site so that those who can't attend live can 
watch the recording of what I talked about and what, and the, the questions people were asking. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I've, I've, I want to give a bit of the live class community aspect to the on-demand classes. That was one of the things I was, I was wondering about, because I feel like you have adjusted what looks like, at least to me from as an outside perspective, pretty seamlessly to our current situation. Um, we're, We're recording this in the eighth month of 2020, which has been completely overwhelmed with coronavirus and the need for physical distancing and limited travel, et cetera. And you have done such a great job, I think, adapting from the workshops that you used to give in person, like the one, the Parisian Curves one that you did at the 5440 retreat, to this new, what we call asynchronous teaching style. And so it just it just is so impressive to see how you've been able to retain some of the principles of um, improvisation and encouraging students to just try it, even though you're, even though you might not be meeting them live, but you are there to encourage through your on-demand class. Could you talk a bit about that process, about what were some of the things you wanted to make sure you um, prioritize in producing the on-demand class? Uh, yeah. I, and I have to say I had a bit of foresight, not about where, you know, this whole COVID thing, but in early 2019, I decided that I had to figure out a way to get off the road teaching quilting. Hmm. And back then I had the idea that maybe I could create an on-demand class I looked, I was, I had a craftsy account like everybody did back then. Yes, yes. And I was looking at those classes and and I kept thinking, I can do that. I know how to teach and I'm a good teacher. You sure do. You are. I I can figure out, I didn't know how, I did not know how I was going to do it, but I started learning, watching YouTube videos of all types and, and I started this process a year and a half ago, because I was looking mm. at some of my old notes recently. And like I said, I didn't know how, but I knew there had to be a way. And at the time, I was even talking to a couple of companies about hiring a production company, a video production company, mm. and make my class that way, because that's what I knew. And I quickly realized that I did not want to spend that kind of money. There had to be a different way. And meanwhile, I had discovered YouTube and I'm watching all these YouTube type people, not even yet in the quilting world. I discovered those kind of second, but I could see that there was another way, that there was a less expensive, but still accessible way. Yes. Uh, and I still had some concerns about how would I replicate the the face-to-face intimacy. Yes. Uh, but you can. So anyway, fast forward, by the end of 2019, I was making my test videos. I took a couple of classes with a couple of people who were doing on-demand teaching. Yes. And slowly gathering more resources for myself. So I was able to launch my on-demand class about the same time that everything was starting to shut down too. Hmm. Face-to-face teaching. But I, and I was in a Facebook group with, in fact, Ebony Love, who you had interviewed a few weeks ago. Oh, that's right. That's right. 
Yeah, a wonderful podcast. But I remember saying in a post on the Facebook group we were in that I really wasn't sure how to replicate the face-to-face experience with virtual teach, virtual live teaching. And Ebony challenged my thinking and just asked a couple of really smart questions that caused me to step back and think, is that really the right question? Am I coming out of this negative perspective? And I realized mm. I was. Mm. So she was just enormously helpful around that. Shout out to Ebony. Um, yes, absolutely. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Um, but anyway, I said, my on-demand class launched. People loved it. I said, I'm going for it. So the guilds that I had contracted with, I went back to them and said, you want to do a live Zoom class? Just step into it and go for it. Learn by doing. You know, a lot of us teachers were trying to figure out how to pivot. And we all, the whole community lifted itself up together. <laughs> yes. It's like, it's, this is definitely a team lift situation. Carol, this has been such a delightful conversation. Can you tell folks where we can find you on social media? Because I'd love for everyone to follow up with you. Oh, thank you. Instagram is my most active social media arena. And it's at Carol with an E, Carol underscore Lyles Shaw. And on on the internet, you can find my blog, and it's carollylesshaw.com. I do a limited amount on Facebook, and again, it's Carol Lyles Shaw. But most of my Facebook work are private groups for classes. Uh, but Instagram and my blog, and Carol Lyles Shaw, you can find me. That sounds perfect. Thank you so much, Carol. This has been a delightful conversation. I'm so thankful to you. Thanks for being with here, being here with us Thank today. Thank you. Thank you, Lisa. And thanks, everybody, for listening. You've been listening to the Stitch Please podcast, the official podcast of Black Women Stitch, the sewing group where Black Lives Matter. We appreciate you supporting us by listening to the podcast. If you'd like to reach out with, to us with questions, you can contact us at blackwomenstitch at gmail.com. If you'd like to support us financially, you can do that by supporting us on Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N, and you can find Black Women Stitch there in the Patreon directory. And for as little as $2 a month, you can help support Support the project with things like editing, transcripts, and other things to strengthen the podcast. And finally, if financial support is not something you can do right now, you can really help the podcast by rating it and reviewing it anywhere you listen to podcasts that allows you to review them. So I know that not all podcasts um, directories or services allow for reviews, but for those who do, for those that have like a star rating or just ask for a few comments, if you could share those comments and say nice things about us at the Stitch Please podcast, that is incredibly helpful. Thank you so much. Come back next week and we'll help you get your stitch together.